0: I am so delighted and excited to be here in the Torch Center for this week's Partnership podcast. And I must say, it almost didn't happen. This was a really tough week for podcasting. Of course, it was a fantastic week in general. We had the Festival of Shavuos. It was a fantastic festival. It was delightful. But it did amount to two fewer days to work on the podcasts. And then, you know, Tuesday which is yesterday, (laughs) It is today's Wednesday. Tuesday, I had this really terrible thought, this really terrible thought, a thought that I really had to banish very quickly. I said, you know what? I missed Sunday and Monday. We didn't miss it. It was great days. We didn't miss them, but it was a festival. I'm not on my computer. We missed two days of the podcast schedule because of the festival. Maybe, just maybe, I'll take just one week off. I know we we haven't missed a new parsha podcast in years now, thank God. Maybe we'll have a week off, and that that thought lasted for about five seconds before I realized that once I miss one week, the following week something else will bubble to the surface, and it's going to be even more monstrously hard to get back on track. Once you get derailed, you are in danger. But look at that, we're still here, we're back, we're at the Torch Center. My friend Carlos told me last night, he says, you have to place a sentinel. You have to hire sentries at the entrance of your brain to not allow bad thoughts to creep in. Thank God that terrible thought was banished. And here we are, it's Parshus Nusso, we are in the second installment of the book of Bamidbar. And what a joy, what celebration that we get to gather together from the Torch Center. The email address is, of course, RabbiWalby at gmail.com. And let's dig into our Parsha, Parsha's Nasso. Parsha's Nusso, you know, of course, is the longest Parsha in the whole Torah, clocking in at 176 verses. For reference, the average Parsha length is about 108 verses long. And it continues with the themes of last week. It starts off with the wrapping up of the roles, of the responsibilities of the various Levite families. So last week we had the family of Kahas. And this week it starts off with Gershon and Merari. And then we have the camp management, who's in the camp, who's out of the camp. And then we have two subjects back to back that each comprise an entire book in the Talmud. You have the sota. this is the suspected adulteress, a woman whose husband is jealous and forbids her from secluding herself with some man and she does it nonetheless and we don't know what happened. Was there any adultery that happened and the Torah delineates the whole process of the inspection of this woman to determine if she in fact committed adultery and it tells us the consequences thereof. And that, of course, is the subject of a whole book of Talmud. The book of Sota discusses the subject of Sota, and that is featured in our Parsha. And then we have the Nazir, and that's going to be the subject of today's podcast. The Nazir, which is the individual who undertakes a vow, an oath to be a Nazir, which means to refrain from consumption of grapes and wine and any grape products or derivatives to not come into contact with dead people and to not cut their hair for typically a minimum of 30 days. And that's the period of the vow of abstinence of the Nazir. And that too has its own book in the Talmud. And then we read about the offerings of the princes for the inauguration of the tabernacle. The first 12 days of the tabernacle, you have 12 elaborate offerings offered by the princes of the 12 tribes on 12 successive days. So let's focus on the Nazir. Again, the Nazir is someone, could be a man or a woman, who accepts a vow to be a Nazir. And the laws of that are that they have to withhold from three things for the duration of that vow. So again, typically it's for a period of 30 days. He must abstain, he or she must abstain from wine and grape derivatives. They cannot Come into contact with dead people, similar to the law of a cohen. A cohen cannot participate in a funeral, cannot hang down a morgue, cannot be in an enclosure with a dead person, and haircuts and removing of any hair is prohibited. This is, of course, a very unusual constellation of prohibited behaviors, but those are the restrictions that mark the Nazir period. And our parish, of course, details everything that happens to the Nazir from the acceptance of the vow to what happens in the event that the period, the duration of the vow is not completed. So for example, in the event that someone dies in close proximity to the Nazir, so this is verse 9, the verse says that when there's a sudden death and not due to any action on their part, they just happen to have become... Impure, they have to start from scratch and there's a whole process of seven days of purification and the eighth day of the purification and you got to start all over. And we read about what happens after he concludes his stint as a Nazir. So really interesting and frankly, mysterious subject. Now, when you study the subject, and especially when you look at the literature on this subject, we find some really incredible things about the Nazir. So first of all, in verse 8, we read, Call Yimei Nizro for the duration of his period of being a Nazir. Kadosh La He is holy for God. He is designated for God. For the duration of his Nazirhood, this individual is elevated, is sanctified, is close to God. Now, the Midrash says so something absolutely incredible, almost unbelievable. It's one of those midrashes or Midrashim that I have to give you the citation because if I just tell it to you, you'll say, oh, Rabbi always pulling a fast one. There's no way the Midrash actually says that. So I'm going to check the source to see if I'm making this up. This is in the Midrash Rabbah, in Shemos Rabbah, and it is chapter 16, and it is item number two in that chapter. And it's talking about the Nazir and the Sotah. And it's stressing how the Nazir, even though the real problem is the wine, that's the focus, that's the emphasis of this vow of abstinence. Nevertheless, he must also refrain from grapes and other grape derivatives and tells us the midrash as if God says the following to the Nazir. God's communicating here to the Nazir. Because you have accepted this vow to refrain from wine, I'm going to show you how you could avoid sin forever. And God said to Moshe, teach the Israelites, teach the Jewish people about the laws of the Nazir. And once a person accepts this vow, once a person adopts the laws of the Nazir, hu behold, this person is like an angel. And it quotes the verse, call you may all the days of his Nazir period, Kadoshu he is holy, he is sanctified, he is elevated to God. So when the verse says that this Nazir for the 30 days of the duration of their Nazir period, Nazir-hood as we call it here, they are like an angel. Now we're going to revisit this Midrash in a bit, but it's telling us that the Nazir is like an angel. And this is a stunning statement from our sages who don't just throw out words arbitrarily. There's something very special, very transformative, very lofty about the Nazir, that he is catapulted into the spiritual stratosphere and he's like an angel. So if you read that comment in the Midrash, it should give you pause and it should raise the question, what is actually happening with this Nazir? And why is it so special? Why is it so powerful? Why is it so potent? What does it mean that we have this individual who becomes like an angel by accepting this vow of abstinence? To not drink wine and to not do the other things that are prohibited for the Nazir. Now there are two famous comments by the Ibn Ezra, which again will help us understand just the nature and the power of this state, the state of the Nazir. In verse 2, the Ibn Ezra points out that this subject is introduced, regatal Moshe, speak to the Jewish people, and tell them, a man or a woman, ki Yafli neder When a person is mafli, to make a vow, a vow of a nazir. What does the word yafli mean? So typically it is translated as to utter, to speak. You have to verbalize. If someone wants to become a nazir, they have to say, Behold, I am accepting the vow of a nazir. But the word yafli, or pele, or mafli, in the various different iterations of this Hebrew word, The word also means a wonder, a pella, a wonder. Says the Ibn Ezra that when the verse tells us that someone is Mafli, Yafli, he becomes a nazir, it is something so wondrous because the vast majority of the world doesn't do this. This person is bucking the trend of the masses. The majority of the world All they want to do is follow their desires, follow their lusts. And this thing is so unique. It's like a unicorn. It's a stunning rarity. There is someone around. There is a person. There is a human who is willingly forfeiting pleasure, who is willingly denying themselves a pleasure. And that is something really wondrous. That's comment number one from the Ibn Ezra. Comment number two is on verse seven. This is chapter six of the book of Numbers. Part of the laws of the Nazir is that they may not come into contact with the dead. The verse says not to their father, not to their mother, not to their brother, not to their sister. They don't go to their funerals in the event that one of those aforementioned relatives dies during the time where the person is still under the state of a Nazir. And the verse explains, al rosho, He cannot become impure. He cannot participate in their funerals because the crown of God is upon his head. Now you may remember that a Kohen cannot go to a funeral either. But an ordinary Kohen, a standard Kohen, can participate in the funeral of the seven close relatives, father, mother, sister, brother, son, daughter, and spouse. The only Kohen that cannot go to even the funeral of a close relative is the Kohen Adol, the high priest. Tells us the Ibn Ezra, this Nasir, he has the laws of a Kohen, but not just any ordinary Kohen. He has the same restrictions against Coming into contact with the dead as a coing adult, as a high priest. An ordinary priest may go to the funeral of a close relative. And then he explains that the justification of that is because the crown of God is upon his head. And he tells us that the etymology of the word nazir is from the word nezer, which means a crown. The Nazir is crowned with the crown of God and as a result cannot participate in this funeral. And again, he revisits the point that he said in verse 2 because the vast majority of people, they are servants, they are subjects to their whims, to their desires, to their petty lusts. And a king who bears a crown is someone who has dominion and control. And this Nazir is called a Nazir because he becomes a king and he has a crown because he is now in control. He has dominion over his whims. And that's why it's called a Nazir. And that is the meaning behind this idea in the verse that the crown of God is upon him. He has dominion over himself. He's like a king, he is like a high priest. And the commentaries point out that this term nezer, meaning a crown, is used also to describe the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. In Parshas Emor, we read a few weeks ago, Leviticus 21.12, ki nezer shemen mishchas alakov alav, the Kohen Gadol cannot come into contact with with the dead, even for close relatives. Why? Because the crown of the anointing oil of God is upon him. Now the commentaries point out, and this may be a little bit technical, the commentaries point out that if you study the two verses that talk about the crown of the Nazir and the Kohen Gadol respectively, they both have the term Nezer, which means a crown, but with regard to the high priest, it says the crown of the anointing oil of God is upon him. Whereas when it talks about the Nazir, it says the crown of God is upon him. The emphasis of the crown of the high priest is on the oil. So it's, it's the, the the crown of the oil, the anointing oil of God. Whereas with the Nazir, it's just directly the crown of God is upon him. Which seems to imply and then is even greater on some level than the Kohen Godel, than the high priest. So he's lofty, he's elevated, he's like an angel, he is holy and dedicated, designated for God, and he's even more lofty for this period than an ordinary Kohen and even more than a high priest. And the commentaries note that there's another similarity between the Kohen the high priest, and the Nazir. So we mentioned earlier that there could be a situation in which the Nazir can have his Nazirhood disrupted by a sudden death. And the verse says, if there's someone who dies and it, it happens all of a sudden, and now he became impure, he has to go back to day one. He has to redo that 30 day, typically, what's typically a 30 day Stint as a Nazir. But if you look at the verses that talk about what happens, he has to purify himself for seven days, and there's the the process, the ceremony of the eighth day. The verse says that it has to bring sacrifices. This is a Nazir who became impure. Why? To atone for the sin of coming into contact with the dead. So again, we have a Nazir. And let's say it's day 15 of the 30 day, the 30 day period that he is a Nazir. And he's on a train or on a bus or traveling somewhere and someone has a heart attack and dies right next to him. And he's there. What could he do? He's now, he's now impure. It was a total accident. What could the Nazir have done to stop An accident from happening next to him. It seems like he should be totally absolved of any wrongdoing, but the verse says explicitly that he has to bring an atonement sacrifice for the sin of being in the proximity of someone who died. And the commentaries ask the obvious question: What sin did he do? Someone collapsed next to him. Someone had a heart attack next to him. It's not his fault. It's not like he chose to walk into a cemetery. Then he could say, well, you violated the terms of your Nazirhood. But here it says that someone died suddenly. Why would that be considered a sin? So the Meshech Chachmor, the great commentaries on the Torah, he says that it is a sin. And he points out that the Talmud tells us that... The accidental murderers who are forced to go into exile in the cities of refuge, they must remain in the cities of refuge until the death of the Kohen gadol of the high priest. And the Talmud asks, wait a minute, what does the death of the high priest have to do with the accidental murderers who are essentially imprisoned in the cities of refuge? Why is the death of the Kohen Gadol, why is that linked to the release of the accidental murderers from the cities of refuge? And the Talmud says, well, the Kohen Gadol was guilty in their crime. They murdered someone accidentally. If you're the Kohen Gadol, you're responsible for the whole nation. And therefore, any accident that happens under your watch, to a certain extent, it's on you. You should have prayed. You should have prayed for the whole generation that no accidents happen when you are responsible for this people. And therefore, the accidental murderers, not that you did it willfully, of course, it was all inadvertent. Even the murderer didn't do it on purpose. Nevertheless, the guilt is placed at the feet of the Kohen Similarly, says the Meshachachma, if you are a Nazir, and you are designated, and you're holy for God, and you're like an angel, and you have this lofty, exalted stature akin to that of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and someone dies next to you, yes, it happened suddenly, yes, it was an accident, and yes, you didn't do anything to bring about the person's demise. Nevertheless, it's upon you. You're guilty. And you have to bring an atonement sacrifice. Because like a toying Adal, the Nazar is capable and really is expected to exude holiness and influence to everything around him. And thus, if there's an accident that happens in his midst, in his proximity, in his environs, he is guilty. That random heart attack is his sin because you are a Nazir. You're like a going adult. You're responsible. You have this tremendous holiness. You're so lofty, it shouldn't have happened around you. So what our Sages are laying out for us here is that the Nazir is going to reach this unprecedented level of holiness simply by accepting upon himself or herself the vow to become a Nazir. And there's more. There's an amazing, absolutely stunning comment in the Bal HaTurim. This is in chapter 6, verse 6. And he tells us why the Nazir is barred from coming into contact with the dead. And he explains that someone who accepts the vow of abstinence of the Nazir is catapulted to such holiness that he's liable to achieve prophecy. And again, this is a regular person. He's an ordinary person. He just became a Nazir. And he's not someone that you would assume would be a good candidate for prophecy. He's a regular person who just became a Nazir. And that's why he must distance himself from the dead. Because if he is hanging around the dead and he becomes a prophet, all the cynics, they're all going to say that this unexpected prophecy, it's not because this person became holy or righteous or lofty. It's the result of his commune with the dead. He is doing some sort of seance, some sort of necromancy. He is accessing this unexpected level of prophecy through some sort of artificial and perverse way. And therefore, to dispel that thought, he must have no contact with the dead. So again, we see this amazing revelation that someone who sets upon himself this vow is liable to achieve something so unexpected, so unprecedented, that onlookers will likely attribute it to some sort of sorcery, some sort of Spiritual chicanery involving uh, demons or spirits of the dead. No person would expect such a dramatic transformation to happen under legitimate circumstances. And we know it is legitimate because that's the power of the Nazir. But to dispel the sinners from saying otherwise, he may not come into contact with the dead. No one can even make the claim that he received this prophecy from the dead. Again, this is the stature, this is the power of the Nazir. This is an ordinary person who accepts this vow to be a Nazir, and he gets this crown, a crown similar to the crown of the Kohen. I like to call this crown the fourth crown. In the past, we've talked about the three crowns of our people. I believe we've read the immortal words of the Rambam in the laws of Torah study. This is chapter three, law number one. It talks about the three crowns that the Jewish people have been crowned with. Keser Torah, the crown of Torah. Keser Kuhuna, the crown of the priesthood. The Malchus, Malchus, the crown of the monarchy. The crown of the Kohain of the priesthood, is inaccessible unless you are a direct descendant of Aaron. The crown of the monarchy, you have to come from the family of David. But the crown of Torah, well, that's available for all. Whoever wants it can come and claim it. And it is not passed on to the next generation. It's not bequeathed to the next generation. It doesn't get transmitted in a hereditary inheritance you have to earn it on your own those are the three crowns of our nation perhaps we could say that the nazir is like the fourth crown it's almost like it's like the fifth beetle there's this unofficial fourth member of this rarefied class the nazir is the one who has this the nazir this crown on his head it's like an angel to a certain extent even loftier And the high priest, he is very likely, very liable to achieve prophecy. And it could all be done in this vow that's typically done for 30 days. And at the conclusion of the 30-day period, there is a process to conclude the Nazirhood. And the verse says, this is chapter 6, verse 13, An easy one to remember, 6.13. This is the Torah, the laws of the Nazir. On the day that he concludes the days of his Nazirhood, he will bring himself to the entrance of the tent of meeting to the temple. So Rashi tells us that the Nazir, of course, has to come to do the various processes of the conclusion of the Nazar period, but he has to bring himself. Now, what does that mean? So my grandfather, blessed memory, he used to say that for all the seminal moments of a person's life, they always have to be accompanied by people. So there's a tradition when someone is brought into the covenant of Abraham in the circumcision they have what's called in in Yiddish, I guess it is, the kvater, the person who is in charge of bringing the child in. And of course, when people walk down the aisle, they're accompanied by typically their parents. And by the way, even a funeral and a burial, you are accompanied by others on your path, on your journey to transition to the next world. But when you have someone who's a Nazir, he's like a high priest. There's no one who can bring him. There's no one who's who's bigger than him in the stature of who he became as a person. There's no equivalent individual to him who can accompany him. This is similar to what our sages say about the burial of Moshe. According to one version of the Midrash, Moshe buried himself. And in that idea, our sages are conveying to us that there was no equivalent individual, there's no peer to Moshe, and therefore he had to bury himself. And that's the idea. The Nazir has reached such an apex, such a pinnacle that there's just no one who could bring him on this journey. To the temple, to conclude his period of being a Nazir, he has to bring himself. And by the way, what happens next? He concludes his Nazir period, and he resumes ordinary life. And this period, these 30 days that he achieved this great heights, what happens to that? Does he lose it all? So if you look at verse 20, this is at the conclusion of the the ceremony and the processes of finishing up, wrapping up the period of the Nazir. It says, and then the Nazir may drink wine. And the commentaries point out that he's allowed to drink wine, but he's still called a Nazir. Even after successfully Concluding the Nazir period, that status is retained even when he goes back to drinking wine and he's no longer bound by the restrictions of a Nazir, he still is called a Nazir. He still maintains some of those achievements that he has unlocked over the course of the 30 days. So if you read all these descriptions of the Nazir, It sounds like a really great deal. It sounds like a cheat code. This is a shortcut. We all love shortcuts. It's a shortcut to achieve an unbelievable stature in a very short time. Give me 30 days and you're an angel. You're like the high priest. You're liable to receive prophecy. You have no peer. You have to bring yourself To the temple. What an amazing idea. And I think it's something that we really should explore and investigate further. And even though today we cannot become a Nazir, actually, to say that more accurately, it would be very unwise to become a Nazir today because you can become a Nazir if you accept upon yourself that vow. But you cannot undo that status absent the temple, so effectively you cannot become a Nazir. Nevertheless, it seems to me that there are aspects of this transformation that we can still employ today. So in that light, let us examine and study the Nazir to understand how such a dramatic and life-altering transformation happens in 30 days. So, of course, the basic idea of the Nazir is a choice. A choice to reject a life of frivolity in favor of a life of connection with the Almighty. In favor of a life of deep meaning, meaning. That's the basic idea of the Nazir. But if you study the subject more broadly, you'll see that there are several elements that are present in the Nazir that make up, so to speak, this crown that the Nazir earns. And those are going to be the elements that we would need to use and to mimic if we want to do something similar. What are the elements of this crown, the fourth crown? So Rashi tells us at the very beginning of the subject. Rashi tells us the famous idea from the Talmud. Why is the episode of the Sota, the suspected adulteress? Why is that juxtaposed to the Nazir? It's teaching us a lesson that if you see a Sota in her disgrace, if you happen to be privy To a suspected adulteress, you should become an azir. Why? Because yayin, because wine, creates an environment where adultery can potentially happen. So there are a few ideas here. First of all, it's a bit counterintuitive. If you see the disgrace of a sota, that alone, you would think, should steal you against the possibility of making that same mistake. But here we learn that that's not true. When you see a sota in her disgrace, it's a message from God that you need to reinforce your own protective measures against such a blunder. So I think these are maybe two of the elements of the fourth crown. Number one, there is a hyper-awareness of the environment that God placed you in and an awareness of the idea that you are receiving divine messages by the things you encounter. Number two, it also demonstrates a lack of confidence in your current standing. A lot of people think, well, I'm good, I'm righteous, I'm safe. Here we see that the attitude of the Nazir is constant vigilance and never resting on your laurels, and never assuming that you are impregnable. So that's number two, I would say. Number three, another critical element of this fourth crown is that the Nazir makes a decision. You know, we all like to maintain optionality. We like to have our cake and eat it too. We want to straddle the fence. The Nazir, is making a decision. He is demonstrating resolve. He is saying, I am going to do something concrete to dedicate my life to God. We all have dreams. We all have ambitions and aspirations. I also think that certainly most of us have a deep realization that we're capable of immensely more than what we're currently doing you know, we all have this sneaky, niggling feeling that we're not quite living up to our potential. We want to live up to that potential. We want to live up to Himai's expectations of us. He may even really, really want it. But the Nazar doesn't just want it. He makes a decision. He acts. As they say, he crosses the Rubicon. He burns the boat he makes this unbreakable vow to become a Nazir. He's not playing it safe. He's not maintaining optionality. There's no half measures. He makes a decision, the kind of ironclad resolve needed to earn the fourth crown. And part of this, I think, is a certain tenacity and resilience and grit in the event that there are hiccups. What happens when the Nazir has someone who dies in his proximity? For whatever reason, he has to start over. Part of the resolve of the Nazir is the recognition that there may be bumps in the road and I may need to restart from square one if my efforts get torpedoed. And I'm accepting that already right now. So I would say that's another element of the Nazir and another element of the requirements, in the event that we want to do something similar, we have to have this resolve, we have to make a decision, and we have to commit to what we are pursuing. Another hallmark of the Nazir is that he doesn't rely on fortitude. The Nazir creates... Structural realities that distance the Nazir from danger. Recall the Midrash that we talked about earlier, the aforementioned Midrash that we promised to revisit. The Midrash tells us that the Nazir and the sota and the suspected adulterers are juxtaposed in the Torah. Why? So, of course, Rashi tells us, because if you see the Sotah in her disgrace, make yourself a Nazir. The Midrash says something else. The Midrash says that a Nazir, the problem with a Nazir, is that he'll drink wine. And wine leads to levity and frivolity and all kinds of bad things. But what does the Torah tell him? The Torah tells him, not only should you not have any wine, but avoid anything that has to do with grapes. Not grapes, not raisins, not dry grapes, not wet grapes, not grape derivatives. The Talmud is a great line. They tell the Nazir, don't walk near the orchard. Don't walk near the vines. Avoid anything to do with grapes. Why? Because you don't want to tempt yourself. Don't say, let me look at those grapes. Let me just... I just, I'll just hold them in my hands. I'll just smell it. But I'll avoid drinking the wine. No. Distance yourself from it and thereby you prevent even the possibility of making a blunder. And the midrash actually connects this to, to the sota. Sometimes people say, well, I, this is the words of the midrash. A person should not say, well, I cannot be intimate with this woman. She's not married to me. She's married to someone else. But I can grab her. Again, words of the Midrash, not my, not my words. We could we could fondle. That's okay. That's technically per, per, permitted. No. Says the Midrash, that's why it's juxtaposed to the Nazir, just like the Nazir has to avoid anything that's any way related to grapes. When it comes to matters of the sota, anything that could even lead to in any distant possibility lead towards the danger of adultery, that all should be avoided. So another element of this crown is not to flirt, literally or figuratively, with danger. The Tama tells us an iconic story about the great sage Abaye. His name appears, I think it's the second most common name in the Talmud. Meaning it, it makes the second most appearances in the Talmud. One of the great sages of our history. He overheard a young boy and girl making plans that they're going to go for a long walk in the forest. And he says, oh, I know what they're going to do. They're going to do something inappropriate. I'm going to stop them. I'm going to prevent them. So they start walking towards the forest, and the great rabbi is following them at a distance, just waiting to pounce it to stop them from doing anything inappropriate. And he's following, and they're walking together. And then they reach a fort in the road, and one of them goes to the right, and one goes to the left. And they say, well, it was so delightful to walk together. And I wish we could spend more time together, but we can't. Alas, I have to go this way. You have to go that way. And they they just left. They just departed. And the great rabbi is all depressed. He says, if I was that young man and there was no one around, who knows what I would have done. And he can't believe it. He's the great sage. And yet this just individual is able to overcome temptation in a way that the great rabbi forecasts about himself that he wouldn't be able to withstand the temptation. So the rabbi was depressed until some old man came to him and says, don't be depressed. Whoever is greater than his friend has a greater Yetzirah. So you are greater than that young chap and therefore you have a greater Yetzirah. So don't feel bad that you feel like you wouldn't have withstood the temptation. You would have had a much more difficult test than that individual. Now, the obvious question of this Talmud is, well, if the great sages all have a much stronger evil inclination, would you imagine that they, God forbid, are doing these sins frequently? And the answer is no. The answer is absolutely not. Why? Because they learned the lesson from the Nazir. They would never get themselves into a situation where they would have to resort to tenacity and strength of character and intestinal fortitude to overcome it. They have structural safety measures to prevent that from even happening. Just like the Nazir, you avoid the vines, avoid the vineyard. They avoid anything that potentially lead down the line towards such a challenge, such a test. That's another element of this crown. The Nazir teaches us to avoid problems and not to wait the last second to try to extricate yourself from danger. Just avoid the danger to begin with. Now, it's also interesting that we have this this 30-day boot camp, this 30-day blitz. And by the way, the Ramah in the book Torah Sa'ola says, this teaches us, that if you do something, a habit, a behavior, you do it for 30 days, you have now acquired that Habit and that characteristic. But it has to be focused. If you want to become this Nazir, you want to earn that fourth crown, you want to forever change your life in 30 days, you have to be focused. You have to be committed. You have to make sure that it's not just 30 empty days. It's 30 days of intense connection With the Almighty. And the Svarno even explains that the reason why the Nazir becomes a Nazir is evident in the verse, he should become holy for God. He should be designated for God. The restrictions are just about removing the disruptions. Wine, well, that leads to levity, and that can disrupt your 30-day mission to connect to your creator. And if you're fussing over your hair and it needs to be like this and like that, it's got to be well-coiffed. It has to be well-groomed. Well, then, again, that will draw your focus away from, from God to the mundane. And even dealing with dead people, it's, of course, a mitzvah under ordinary circumstances. But if you're going to go to boot camp and this is an investment of a lifetime, 30 days to change your life forever— You gotta focus on what you need to focus on, nothing else. So you can earn this crown in only 30 days. You can achieve tremendous heights with a 30 day commitment, provided that all these characteristics are fulfilled. All these elements are checked off. It's gotta be a decision. It has to be a commitment. It has to be focused. It has to be well-designed to ensure that you don't make any mistakes. And following this formula, it is possible to change your life completely, to turn everything around in only 30 days. There's one final point, which I found to be really interesting, and that is that the Nazir has to be malleable enough for this. The commentaries note that traditionally, the Nazir, that was the mitzvah of young people, typically unmarried people. And the source for that is, if you look at the list of people that the Nazir cannot participate in their funeral, it doesn't mention their spouse, or their children? Why are those relationships omitted from verse 7? to top about all the relatives that are not allowed to participate in their funeral. And the commentators explain, well, the Nazir was typically a young person. And the explanation of that is, a young person is still malleable enough to have a 30-day blitz to achieve a radical change. Young people are best suited for this kind of radical and accelerated growth. Once someone is really older, or they're advanced in their years, they become much more set in their ways, and having such a grand transformation is much harder. And therefore, it's ideally suited for young people. Now, just from a law perspective, mature adults can do this as well, but because the Nazir is typically the domain of the youth, it doesn't mention the spouse. But I think just for our quest, this, this idea, this, this fasting idea of our parasha, that with 30 days, you could change your life completely. It should be noted that the younger a person is and the more malleable and flexible they are, the Likelier it is that this will, in fact, achieve its aims. So that's the Nazir. I think it's really interesting that even though it sounds like a real dream, 30 days, you change everything, turn your life around in 30 days. Interestingly, it's not encouraged. The Talmud talks about how the sages would dissuade people from taking on this 30 day challenge. And in fact, at the end of the 30 days, or the period, the duration of the Nazirhood, the Nazir has to bring a sin offering. And Rashi quotes the Talmud, why does the Nazir have to bring a sin offering? Al-shetsir atzmo minhayayim, because he pained himself by abstaining from wine. And the commentaries explain, Judaism were not into asceticism. It's supposed to be gratifying and rewarding if you are in pain and you're causing yourself pain. That's not really the way. And therefore there is this carve out for the nazir, but it's not encouraged. I was thinking maybe to suggest an idea here. You look at the words of Rashi, the Nazir has to bring a sin offering because he's pained by the loss of the opportunity to drink, to drink the wine for 30 days. Perhaps Rashi is indicating that the reason why this is discouraged is because it may cause you pain. But what if the notion of elevating yourself and trying to live a more meaningful life, what if that thrills you? What if you're enchanted by that idea? What if you're so delighted to have the opportunity to shake yourself free of all the nonsense and all the emptiness, not just of the wines, but the various other things, the other silly and vacuous Supposed pleasures of the world. I think we can imply from this Rashi when someone yearns for the deep and sublime pleasure of living a truly meaningful life, a kind of pleasure that cannot be matched with any of the quick dopamine hits of what the esharah, the evil inclination, wants you to do with the wines and the various kinds of little petty pleasures that he places before you. When someone willingly accepts a life with fewer cheap pleasures, but instead you choose the harder path, you choose the path of meaning and purpose, and you do it joyously because you want to connect to the eternal. You want to be like an angel. You want to matter eternally and on a cosmic scale. You want to push yourself to see what you can become. How great can this human be? And you're not choosing to have just pain to avoid this. You know, it's not pain. It's all pleasure. It's all joy. You're choosing a life of profound meaning and substance. And you don't want just the empty calories of life. I think in that instance... Becoming a Nazir, or as we like to say, trying out the fourth crown, it's encouraged. But it is rare. Most people who do it are going to feel some pain, and that's why there's the sacrifice. And again, like the Ezra told us, it's a wonder to see it. It's a wondrous thing to see because it is so rare for someone to actually want to change. It's a unicorn. When you see it, it's a sight to behold. It's the one in the million. Someone who wants that crown. Most people are just satisfied with mediocrity. They don't want to make that decision. They don't want to commit themselves. They don't want to push themselves. They don't want to challenge themselves. But if we do, if we want to be crowned with the fourth crown, now we know what it takes. Let's get to the sweet's exquisite insight. Are you ready? The exquisite insight. When it talks about the sota, the suspected adulteress, it starts off by saying, Dar ben speak to the Jewish people and say to them, Ish. Ish, a man, a man, sister ishto, when his wife acts unfaithfully. So it talks about, of course, all the laws of how a woman becomes a sota and how that situation is resolved. But Rashi asks the question why is a ish, ish, a man, a man? He could have simply said a man whose wife acts unfaithfully or he suspects that she may. Act may have been acting unfaithfully, and then that could trigger all the laws of a sota. Says Rashi, when a woman commits adultery, she is betraying two men. Of course, one man is her husband, but one man is God. Now, of course, that sounds strange because God's not a man. Man is not a God. We know that. Rashi quotes the verse in scripture by the song of the sea. During the splitting of the sea or after the splitting of the sea, Jewish people erupted in song. And they said, God is a man of war. Hashem ish milchama. And of course, no one's claiming that God is a man. But there is a verse in scripture that describes God as a man of war. And that is what's being referenced over here. Someone, a woman who commits adultery, she is betraying both her husband and God, who, in a different context, is called a man of war. Now, I saw an amazing letter that my grandfather wrote, and he was writing to one of his students who was having a really hard time finding a life partner, finding someone to settle down with. And he quoted this Rashi and he said something amazing. He says, with respect to a husband and wife and creating marital unity and harmony, God is like a man of war. And just like God was fighting for us, was warring on our behalf when the Egyptians cornered us and we were greatly imperiled. And Moshe tells the Jewish people, you don't need to fight. God is fighting for you. He will fight and you be silent. Similarly, my grandfather wrote to this individual in this area, in the area of creating unity and harmony between husband and wife, God is fighting for us. And we need to just be quiet. We need to rely on him to wage the war, to fight the battle on our behalf. I think this is just an amazing idea. Someone who feels despondent or depressed that they are still alone in life, this could be very comforting to know that God is fighting on your behalf. And I was thinking if we extend this analogy a little further, the Jewish people we didn't really split the sea, but we did walk into the sea. We still have to walk through those waters. We still take the plunge. I think if we extend this idea further, someone can be comforted in knowing that God is fighting for them on their behalf. But they also need to know that just as was the case with the split of the sea, when the Jewish people said, God is fighting for us, and they acknowledged as such afterwards they still to do something on their own. And I was thinking maybe we could extend this idea a bit further. The Talmud tells us that God arranges spouses. God is a matchmaker. He puts people together. But the Talmud also says that God provides sustenance for people. And by the way, this should be obvious to those who have familiarity with the Talmudic literature on the subject. But the Talmud says that it is as hard for God to put man and woman together as it was for him to split the sea. Again, telling us that God is the same man of war, so to speak, fighting on our behalf, fighting to connect us with our better half or other half, fighting in the same manner as he was for the Jewish people when they were in danger. And the Talmud also says that it's as difficult for God to make sure that man has his sustenance as it was for God to split the sea. So again, perhaps we can suggest, we can extend this idea a bit further, God arranges a spouse for us, and he's committed to that cause, we can be comforted to know that he's also committed to the other causes that he pledged to take care of us with. In those matters too, such as, you know, making sure that we have food to eat, sustenance, all our needs are met, we can know that God is a warrior, so to speak, fighting on our behalf. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you're still listening, if anyone's still listening, it's the Parsha Podcast from Houston, Texas, I must say, it is sweltering right here, right now at the Torch Center. The air conditioner is on. I actually went to go check on it. The uh, thermostat told me that it, it is on. It doesn't feel like it. I do feel a little sweaty. No big deal. No big deal. We can handle it. But I thank you for listening. I hope you have a fantastic day. I hope uh if you haven't yet done so, you send me an email, rapidobjima.com. Just let me know how things are going. Have an incredible rest of your week. Have a stupendous and sensational and delightful and peaceful and uplifting and meaningful Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, please, God, please, God, please God next week, we'll gather again together, hopefully in a uh, more pleasant environment than the sweltering room I'm in right now. For some reason, feels like the air conditioner is not as strong as it should be. But I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. And please, God, we will talk again next week.